America, above all else, is a country that was founded on a set of ideals. And um, that's unique, something like the Declaration of Independence, something like the Constitution, where specific rights and specific opportunities are secured to the people who are there. And our early founding fathers didn't really distinguish much between citizens and non-citizens with respect to the idea that if you came with the ideas and and the desire to join in this great American experiment, you would be welcome. And the idea that we've come now close to 250 years later and we're we're all about shutting doors, to me that's not part of what I always learned as the American ideal or the American dream. Where Policy Meets People, a Jeff's Human Services podcast. I'm Kristen Rantanen. Following the Biden administration's announcement earlier this summer to increase refugee admissions from the previous administration's cap of 15,000 to 62,500, and as heartbreaking stories of Afghan refugees fill our newsfeed, this seemed like an important time to discuss policies around refugee services. These services are deeply rooted in the work we do here at JEVS. In 1941, we were founded by members of the Jewish community to help individuals fleeing the ravages of war, anti-Semitism, and discrimination in Europe find meaningful vocation in Philadelphia. Fast forward to today, and our Center for New Americans has proudly helped to resettle refugees from some 40 plus countries in our community. Welcoming the newcomer is part of our DNA and work that we remain committed to doing. In this episode, we'll hear from Olha and Mohammed, two former refugees who now call Philadelphia home. We'll also discuss the impact that the previous administration's refugee policy had on the refugee services infrastructure and the folks who depend on it. With this planned increase and the critical urgency of events in Afghanistan, is the U.S. refugee system prepared to help? get the big picture, I spoke to Naomi Steinberg, VP of Government Relations and Advocacy at Hyas, a Jewish nonprofit that today provides humanitarian aid and assistance to refugees from all faiths from all corners of the globe. First, let's make sure that folks understand the difference between an individual who's looking to immigrate here to the United States and a refugee seeking asylum. It's a legal distinction, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I really appreciate this question because it's it's an important one. Words matter and definitions matter. So it's, it's important to be clear on these from the very outset. But before I answer the question that you actually ask, I, I do want to provide a little bit more context just to give a, a sense of the scope of what we're talking about, particularly in Please. terms of the people that highest is here to help serve. It is thought that there are well over 80 million people around the world right now who've been forced to flee from their homes. Among them are 26 million refugees. We are in the midst of a forced global displacement crisis of epic proportions. Wow. Around the world, people are on the move. But the definitions inherent in that in that movement are important. Refugees are people who have been forced to flee from their home country due to persecution or because of a fear of persecution because of their race, their religion, their nationality, their political opinion or membership in a particular social group. 
refugee definition has existed in international law and U.S. law for decades. Asylum seekers, which is a term I know many of us are hearing, you can't open a newspaper or you know turn on the news um, without seeing this. Asylum seekers have fled persecution too in their home countries and are seeking safety in a different country, but they have not yet received legal recognition or refugee status. And then immigrants is a much broader category. They move from their homes for many, many different reasons. These can include people who are fleeing war or poverty. And for those who are looking to improve their lives through work, education, or reuniting with their families, it's a very broad category. But in summation, you know, all refugees and asylum seekers are immigrants, but not all immigrants are refugees and asylum seekers. I think that's super helpful. That was exactly the way that it was explained to me and something that has has stuck in my head. But oh, good. I, I wanted our audience to hear that from from the expert as well, because it is such an important distinction. And, and as you said, words really matter, especially mm-hmm. these days. So let's talk about, you know, the United States is, is a country of immigrants. You could even say that the original settlers who came here were fr- fleeing religious persecution, were refugees. It's really a part of our country's DNA. Can you talk about the importance of the United States as a safe haven for refugees? You're right. I mean, a large part of who we are as a country is because of the immigration history that so many of us share. But as part of that, it's also important, I think, to recognize it's difficult to separate the ebbs and the flows of our country's response to immigrant groups. You know, we have have this narrative that we're a country of immigrants. And in some ways, I think that really whitewashes the reality of it, because we have a very checkered past when it comes to welcome. We've experienced immigration quotas that were tremendously based on racist foundations. We've outright denied entry to specific groups. And, you know, we don't have to look back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. We can look back a few years to um, the Muslim ban, for example. So this is part of our, our recent history. But in spite of this turbulent history, I firmly believe that the majority of Americans have and continue to stand for welcome in a variety of different ways. And that, I think, is maybe because so many of us do, in fact, have immigrant histories in, in our families, some more recent than others. But for many of us, that's that's a fact. But it's not just me that has this sort of gut feeling about it. You know, recent polling supports that as well. So, for example, the Cato Institute just released um, two months ago their 2021 Immigration and National Survey, um, and it shows that only 9% of Americans want no immigration. 91% are welcome to the idea of immigration, albeit at differing levels. And it's those kind of figures that get lost in the noise when we're talking about immigrant and refugee welcome to the United States. So I do think it's worth noting that this is not just me having a you know, a warm, fuzzy feeling, you know, the facts, the facts support this. But that is not to say that I'm wearing rose colored glasses about this immigration and even more specifically, our U.S. asylum system and refugee systems have been politically weaponized, for lack of a better term. And this is dangerous, not just for us um, as a country, but of course, for the well-being of the people who are directly impacted, because When we shut our doors to those who are seeking protection, and I might add in violation of our own domestic laws, Mm. we're sending a message to the rest of the world that doing the same in other countries is okay. Because for better or worse, when the U.S. leads on these issues, other countries are willing to do the same. And when the U.S. abdicates this role, as we did in the previous four years, other countries are all too willing to race to the bottom with us. And so... What we do matters on a national level and on a global level as well. 
So let's talk about the last few years. My understanding is that in addition to slowing the flow of refugee arrivals to, I think what you could generously call a trickle, the past few years have also seen the dismantling of the refugee serving system Mm -hmm. in the United States and abroad. And so I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what's your assessment of the infrastructure to support refugee arrivals in the U.S.? It is true that over the previous four years that there was a sharp decrease in refugee arrivals through the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, which is our refugee resettlement program. And because of that, the internal infrastructure was was damaged. HIAS is one of the nine national refugee resettlement agencies that partners with the U.S. government in the resettlement program. And all nine of these national agencies, we have networks around the country of local organizations that are on the ground in local communities welcoming newly arrived refugees. Some of these organizations had to fully shut down over the last Mm. four years. And some organizations that have larger portfolios that work on a myriad of issues had to put their resettlement programming on pause. And the same with the international infrastructure that supports the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program due to the shifts in U.S. policy and priorities. But the good news is, is that we are still standing. You know, in spite of the previous administration's laser-like focus on trying to obliterate the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program, and that is not hyperbole, that, that is the truth, we are still here and we are still strong and we are ready to rebuild. And just speaking from Hyas's perspective, not on behalf of the other nine national refugee resettlement agencies, we know that the support for welcoming refugees around the country never waned. In mm-hmm. fact, only increased. So we, along with all of our resettlement partners, are excited to be building back and absolutely have the capacity to welcome increased numbers of refugee arrivals now, and we'll be able to welcome even more over time. I was born in a village of Dubinci, Chernobyl region of Ukraine, a beautiful European country. This is Olha. I spoke to her about her journey as a refugee from the Ukraine to the United States with the help of Yana Knevsky from Jevs, who interpreted our conversation. I grew up in the village, graduated from high school, got married. My sons were born there. I spent there all my life in Ukraine. It used to be a quiet, pastoral life in the native village and country. At what point did you realize life was becoming too dangerous to stay in your village? In 2014, separatists started a war in Ukraine, the war that has been raging for the last seven years. In the violence, I lost friends, relatives and neighbors. I became very scared for the life of my sons and husband. I've made a difficult decision to flee the country with my family. It was a very difficult decision to leave behind relatives and friends, native place. Never before considered the possibility that I would leave my country and become a refugee. 
I applied for a refugee status for myself, my husband, and two kids. Was leaving your home and starting a new life in another country an overwhelming prospect for you? Да, конечно. Я боялась неизвестности. I was scared of the unknown and at the same time lucky enough to receive a refugee status. Was the process difficult? Did you encounter any barriers? Да, это был тяжелый и долгий процесс. Yes, it was difficult and long process. It took almost three years to get an invitation for the interview at the American Embassy. From our region, it took 24 hours to get to Moscow, and it was dangerous for us to stay in the capital of foreign country. I was lucky enough to receive refugee status, and we arrived to the United States. Can you tell me about arriving in the United States for the first time? What was your first memory? What did you see, and how did you feel? Это была очень трогательная встреча с моими родителями. I saw light of the high-rise building, highways and tunnels. It was like watching classic American movie. I had a hope for the better life in the new country. We were referred to Jeff's Human Services for Employment Services. Our experience with Jeff's Refugee Assistance Program was extremely positive and rewarding. Rev. Steph met me with open arms and deep-rooted understanding of what I went through before arriving in the United States. My employment counselor, Yama, assisted me on work ethics, interviewing techniques, and resume preparation. She helped me navigate through extensive job search and helped me to get a job. She was always ready to answer my questions and to give a knowledgeable advice. Oh, да, мне очень нравится моя новая жизнь в новой стране и прекрасный город Филадельфия. Yes, I like my new life here in our new country and the beautiful city of Philadelphia. It became our new home. My family, friends, and my job are here. My new homeland wins a special place in my heart. I believe that I will love it for the rest of my life. Newly founded freedom in the country that so generously accepted myself and my family. As a graduate of Ternopil National University in Ukrainian literature and language, I have my sights set on improving my English and attending college to become a social worker. I have a big heart and willingness to assist people as I was helped. Recently, I was awarded with Rising Star Award through the State Refugee Assistance Program. I have experienced the wonderful feeling of generosity, kindness, and love that came from the American society toward the refugees. There is nothing in my heart but gratitude, respect, and warm feelings toward refugee assistance program at Jeff's Human Services 
for the help, encouragement, and willingness to share with me and other clients of the program their life experience and knowledge. They are always ready to help and support. Center for New Americans become our home. Thank you. One, one of the, the really key factors is a lot of those folks, they actually were fleeing dangerous situations in their home countries. This is Joe Hohenstein, who you heard at the top of the show. He's a prominent immigration lawyer now serving in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. We caught up with him on a particularly busy day at his office, so please pardon the background noise. But the idea is that once they did get here, they knew, work hard, get ahead buy into the American dream. The way that I look at things is those folks understand what it means to be an American mm-hmm. more so because they've struggled for much of this stuff than many folks who had the, um, the good fortune of being born here. I want to talk a little bit about the the president's recent uh, presidential declaration lifting the arrival cap for refugees from some 15,000, I believe, to 62.5. I wondered what your thoughts were on uh, the declaration and and what it means to lift that cap. Well, I'm I'm glad he's increasing the cap. Mm -hmm. He hasn't completely lifted it. Right, Um, increasing other In other points in time, we have accepted uh, many more people. And I'll be honest um, and say this isn't a strictly partisan issue. Immigration in the 1980s was not a partisan issue. The last major uh, amnesty program was passed under a Republican president, mm-hmm. and um, and he championed it. And there have been restrictive measures that were taken by Democratic presidents mm-hmm. as well. The idea that we would limit um, that type of immigration from people who are leaving hardship mm-hmm. is to me um, not not within our american character it's not mm-hmm. what we've always been taught that we were about as a country mm-hmm. and we ought to be able to increase and the impact of immigrant communities is almost always a plus economically. Folks come in um, in ways where they're they're taking jobs at the outset that do not um, attract U.S. citizens by and large, or or maybe attract them less because they're not a high paying, uh, mm-hmm. or or they're or they're hard. They're hard manual labor jobs, yeah. and so they get into these these work. But they have the dream, and they and they're and they're working to build it up for their children, as a, a substantial one, and it's almost always a substantial net positive. Mm-hmm. So, I I think we ought to be looking at continually raising those. Uh, we know we have um, an, another whole community uh, from Afghanistan. Yes. Who will likely need protection as well. Again, in a war that we have been engaged in, we may not have been the one who started it, but we've been engaged in for close to 20 yeah. years now. And we're now leaving it. We can't leave those people who relied on us and who relied on, you know, trying to establish something like we have in their home country. We can't just cast them adrift. 
I had the opportunity to speak with Naomi Steinberg from Hyas, and she shared a stunning statistic um, when we spoke. And she told me that uh, we were in the middle of a global displacement crisis affecting some 80 million people, including 26 million folks seeking refugee status. I was really blown away by those numbers. And um, I was wondering um, how you thought about those numbers. This is where our role as the beacon really comes into play. There is no way that we can take on millions and millions of people displaced. But when we reestablish our rightful place as the safe haven, as the refuge, and we agree, like the president had begun to do, to raise the number and to get ourselves back to the place where we can say, do as we do, not just as we say, then we can be that example. And if we lift our numbers up, then we can provide the additional support or even just the example mm-hmm. to have other places in the world that are also have capacity to take on um, new population, to take on new people, to mm-hmm. do it as well. When we do that, we, we encourage the European community, we encourage you know, Australia, we encourage other neighboring countries uh, to which people are, are fleeing that might have a little bit more in common with them linguistically, culturally, to then take on the additional load of these shifting populations and, and the demographics. And, um, and frankly, we're also going to create um, an atmosphere that will increase global stability so that hopefully we start having fewer displaced people because mm-hmm. we start seeing a reduction in conflict. And that's what I'd like to see us getting into because it's a way, again, for us to be the beacon of <laughs> the, the freedom that we were the first country in the world to really explicitly adopt. Where I live in my neighborhood, um, not a lot of people um, spoke English at that time. This is Mohammed. I spoke to him about his journey from Iraq to the United States. The U.S. Army, they were like searching the houses um, for like firearms. And then they decided to take one of my neighbors. He had like no clue that there were like firearms, hand grenades in his garden. They thought that he was hiding it. Actually, the Iraqi army, the former Iraqi army did that. We're just like trying to run away from the U.S. forces at that time. The U.S. army, they were like searching that house. They didn't have an interpreter. So I just like translated to them like this stuff is not his is because the Iraqi army was hiding this stuff in his garden and they took my word and they let him go and then uh, I think he was like a major or a captain like the officer from the US army and he invited me like to go and translate um, for them and I thought okay uh, well it's a good idea and they paid well I think it was um, $10 or $12 uh, per day at that time something like this I don't recall like the exact amount and then I started like to work with them. Uh, once, like when they need me, they give me a call. I go with them like for two or three hours, like when searching houses. And then another company came and took over because they got a contract with the government. And then they started like um, to be like this thing started to be more organized. 
Um, and I think the pay rate was about like $950 a month. And that was great wow. because the Iraqi dinar is not that like strong like the mm -hmm. US dollar at that time in Iraq. So I said, okay, it's like income, um, a good job. Um, maybe like I will get something out of it because anyways, I wasn't like planning to stay um, in Iraq because of the Saddam um, system was like really corrupted. So my father always motivated me like to get my high school done and just go outside of Iraq like to um, study, have a degree mm -hmm. from outside of Iraq. So mm -hmm. that's what motivated me. So it was really, it really kind of an accident. You were in the right place at the right time. That is right, yes. Could you tell me about your day-to-day -day as an interpreter? Yeah, so that company, and they said like the only place, the only camps that we can send you um, to is the U with the U.S. Marines in the west of Iraq, which was at that time Camp Habania and Camp TQ. So I said, okay, uh, I'm going to go. And then I will see what's happening. And when I went there, it was like, wow, it was all like combat units, um, not like searching houses or interrogating people. So my first day, I was like so scared. And I remember like uh, the lieutenant colonel, which he was like responsible for my unit that I work with. He told me, hey, um, well, my nickname was Scat at that time. We were not allowed to use like our real name. So he told me like, Scat, what's wrong with you? I said like, I'm just scared. It's like people are shooting on us. There were like mortar attacks and everything. He said, okay, you know what? I said, yeah, what? He said, like, you have a gun with you. So just get your gun ready. Whatever happens, do whatever you have to do. You are one of us. So you protect us and we protect you. We trust you. I said, like, hey, I've never used a gun before. <laughs> I've never shot anybody before. So yeah, but um, thanks God. Like I, I, I haven't shot at anybody uh, but it was dangerous. I can I can definitely say it was dangerous. Oh my goodness! Wow! Wow! Yeah. What What did your family think about this? Well, my dad told me like not to come back <laughs> because like sooner or later they're gonna know, and that happened later on. Mm -hmm. They threatened me, and they threatened my family, and we all had to flee. We like as a family had to deal with a lot of consequences because of my work with the U.S. government. Yeah, let's talk some more about those consequences. I know that you mm -hmm. you were forced to make a difficult decision to leave. That is um, right. Yep. Um, what were the consequences, and 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 how dangerous did things get for you? Uh, this is exactly what happened to me. We had a meeting with the Iraqi army and one guy of the Iraqi army, he was living in my neighborhood. He was like literally, I think, five, seven blocks from my house. And he recognized me right away. And that that was like, choom, like the bullet in my head because like he, he recognized me, he knew where I lived. And um, my father told me like, they came to our house looking for you because they know that you are looking, working with the US government. So my family had to flee. They went to Turkey, they stayed there for a while until everything was settled down. Well, at that time I was uh, still working with the US government, but then uh, because like things started like to be like hectic, I told them like, hey, I just can't do it anymore. And they had like, I can't go to Baghdad, I need to leave the country. So they arranged everything for me and I went to Jordan. And what was your life like uh, during that time in Jordan? And then I started the university, I started civil engineering, um, but I didn't finish it because, you know, I like aviation. So I decided uh -huh. to go with the aviation and that's where I got like my um, degree and worked as air traffic control officer. And did you work as an air traffic controller when you came back to Iraq? That is right. Yes. So mm -hmm. that was, I think, back in um, 2000. 11 yeah when i get married 
I went back. Uh, I started to work as air traffic control officer in uh, Baghdad International Airport, and then I got mm-hmm. married over there. So, um, so you're back in Iraq in 2011 in the fall, mm-hmm. and you're working at the airport, and. Y- But it was still a pretty dangerous situation, right? That's right, yeah. But I didn't go outside in the city. I was just living in the airport. I didn't go outside because there's still like some active militia, some active gangsters, bad guys, whatever. They were like um, assassinating like people. I I mean, until today, they're still like looking for people who are working with the U.S. government and assassinate them. So I lived there until... um, December 2014. There was a program is called uh, the Special Immigrant Visa, the mm-hmm. SIV program. So I applied for it, and then when I got married, I asked them like to add my wife, and then they said, uh, "No, you can't add her, but you can open another case." So since 2010 until 2011, I got my visa, but I couldn't travel because I added her. 2013. We were clear to go, but my wife was pregnant, so they didn't want me to go until mm-hmm. I get my baby. And then we got the visa, and the day that we left Iraq, it was December third, uh, exactly, twenty fourteen. So it was a full. Th- it was a full three years that you were yep. waiting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember every single detail about that day. <laughs> mm-hmm. We had to go to the main entrance of the airport because I wanted to say goodbye for my family and for my wife's family. Mm-hmm. So we went there, we took some pictures, we said goodbye and farewell and everything. Mm-hmm. I didn't cry until about like 30 minutes before we land. <laughs> because I said, okay, like how many miles? Like thousands of miles is between here and there. And I don't know like when I'm going to see my parents again, when I'm going to see my brothers again. So at that point I realized, okay, um, this is going to be my new country. This is going to be my new home. And this is going to be like my life. Um, so I started to cry. <laughs> yeah. And I remember I still like have the smell in my nose. Like when we first went out of the terminal to the streets, smell like all of like gas and like that cold breeze and cold winds and everything. I still remember like that smell. <laughs> when I've talked to other people about their arrival story, there's always something, either something they saw or they smelled or they tasted or they heard, you know, that f- those first few moments coming out of the airport that stuck with them. So it's really interesting. So for you, it was a, the smell of a, of a city. That uh, is right. Yeah. In the winter. <laughs> that is right. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and you had the folks at highest to help. And, and then eventually you met folks at Jeff's. Um, so with highest, they helped me with my paperwork. Um, like get it, get putting me on welfare because like it's, it's, um, like a checkoff list that they have, like they receive you from the airport the next day, they take you to Social Security Department, then they take you to the Department of Public Welfare to put you on um, like the benefits like food stamps, Medicaid, you know, like showing mm-hmm. you how to use the public transportation. And pretty quickly, you got referred to Jeb's. That's right. Yeah. I just wanted to start my life like catching up again because I'm feeling I'm falling behind. Like I have no money in my bank account. I have no car. So I just didn't want to be on welfare at that time. So I went to Jeb's. They... they set like an appointment for me, I think, um, a week after I applied for my benefits. And they really did a great job because they found me a job, I think, like three weeks or two weeks after I was enrolled in Jeff and, and Center for New Americans program as a machine operator. And I stayed there for about like, um, I think, six, eight months, something like this. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And then I was and, referred to Jeff's again, like as um, to apply for the position. <laughs> right, right. So tell me about that. So we had an opening for a job developer, right? Mm-hmm. So during that time, while I was working as a machine operator with that factory, the the, corrugation, the cardboard corrugation factory, I was volunteering for Jeff's, like teaching English to the new um Comers, um, like um, telling them my story, telling them my experience, and like what to expect. Um, don't set high, high, too much high expectations, but you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. All of the job developers encouraged me, like to apply for the position, and then yeah, I started with them. I think it was a uh, November, November 2015. Wow. Yep. Uh, okay. Okay. So. You're working, now you're working full-time at Jeff's as a job developer. That is right, yeah. We did like a lot, a lot of like um, cultural orientation, English classes, comprehensive Mm -hmm. English classes. We did a lot of work and like some of them, we did it only in one week. The next week they were like on their feet on the job. I'm so proud of myself and proud Mm -hmm. of my colleagues, to be honest. Mm -hmm. We were like doing an amazing job like placing Mm -hmm. people with no skills at all no language at all no education at all in jobs and they were making money and you know it was tough but we did it i'm awfully glad to hear that um when because when you decided to move on there were a lot of us who were really sad about that yeah i got a scholarship at la salle university Mm -hmm. and um i just couldn't refuse it um it's like pays everything for me I wasn't yeah. planning to leave at all. <laughs> I love my right. job. I love Jeff's. I'm part of Jeff's family. <laughs> oh, I think you are. Yes, mm-hmm. forever and ever. Yeah. So you're working on, you're finishing up a bachelor's degree? That is right. I have uh, one more semester and I'm getting my bachelor's in biology pre-med and uh, taking my MCAT hopefully very, very soon and applying for med school, hopefully for 2022. <laughs> I'm not surprised that you're doing well in school. And... um your family has grown recently. That is right. Yeah, we're a family of four now. <laughs> oh, wonderful! That's <laughs> wonderful. Do you ever do you ever think about what your life might have been like if if the refugee system hadn't been there for you if you weren't able to leave? Ah, uh, well, um, maybe I was already dead. Now <laughs> somebody oh. will just find me and kill me. <laughs> so that's the thing. To be honest. I'm laughing mm-hmm. because it's, it's the sad true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I guess I should have anticipated that answer, but. Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, no, it's, this is the true. Like, um, yeah. none of my friends like that, I know they were working with the US government. They were killed because we are all here safe in the United States. But mm-hmm. I know a lot, a lot, a lot of people and stories um, like they've been killed. Like they, they just struggled to go out and they caught them. They killed them. And like, literally, we were like just a providing service as interpreters, translators. We were just a providing services. We were not spying. We were not giving any confidential information about like the gov- the Iraqi government or like um, people who were like trying to do whatever. We were just mm-hmm. like, my job was just to translate. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that you found the United States to be welcoming. Well, I think um, from my own perspective, like, the United States will be always welcoming um, to anyone. 
I mean, it's just like the flow of the immigrants. It depends on the government, like policies mm-hmm. and regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that thing will last because America was built by immigrants. And mm-hmm. that's why like they are welcoming everyone. It may take a while, like a year or two, but I think everything is going back to where it was. So yeah, and I still believe like America is a welcoming country. The fact of the matter is these are individuals that they're quite simply, they're our neighbors. Naomi Steinberg of the Humanitarian Aid and Refugee Services Organization, HIAS. There mm-hmm. are brilliant people who have been through extraordinary circumstances, but they are our neighbors just like everyone else. Right. They are lawyers, they are pharmacists, they are teachers, they're doctors, they're coaches, they're business owners, they're activists, you know, the list goes on. So. There are new Americans living in communities around the country just starting their lives fresh and establishing roots here just as our grandparents and great-grandparents did before. You know, one of the ways that we like to talk about this program with people who are unfamiliar and might have fears is that the vast majority of refugees who come to the United States are coming with their families or reuniting with their families who are already here. They're coming so that they can be in safety again. They can worship as they choose. They can live in freedom and help their children get educations, just like our relatives did. There is no difference. Mm -hmm. It's like any one of us would do now if we had to leave our homes under duress. I think there's this assumption that there is this this massive chasm that separates those of us who were born here and those who come as refugees. And the fact of the matter is, while our experiences obviously differ greatly, there's really a lot that we share in common, primarily that being the love of our families and the desire for our children to have the education and the opportunities that that we all want. You know, when we talk about the numbers or populations of concern, it gets really lost, I think, that each number is an actual person. Story, right. It's a father, it's a nephew, it's a best friend. And so one thing to do if you have questions, or even if you don't have questions, certainly, about who refugees are and about what refugee resettlement is, get to know some of the resettled refugees in your community. There are resettlement um, communities from coast to coast, Mm -hmm. north, south, east to west. And, you know, organizations like yours are a good place to start. Um, And I think it's really kind of hard to be afraid of somebody and to hate somebody when you're breaking bread with them, when your kids are in school together. I want to end this episode on a personal note. I was at our Center for New Americans shortly after the previous administration announced its restrictive policies on refugee arrivals. I had just finished meeting with a group of Syrian arrivals who were anxious to start over in Philadelphia. And I remember stepping out of the classroom and talking to our center director, Zoya, and holding hands and crying about the administration's new policies as we wondered to each other what was to become of people who were looking to us to provide a safe place. It's my hope that the United States will remain mindful of the critical role we play as both a new home to people displaced by war and persecution and as a leader to inspire other countries to welcome the stranger as neighbor. 
I want to thank my guests Olha and Muhammad for sharing their personal stories, and Naomi Steinberg and Representative Joe Hohenstein for their timely and important insights. I also want to thank PWP Video for their assistance in production of this podcast. They're great partners in creating media with a mission. For more of their work, visit pwpvideo.com. Our theme song was composed by Zach Wright, and the show was produced by me, alongside of my colleague John Colburn, also of Jeff's Human Services, and Michael Schweisheimer and Pat Ganley of PWP Video. The show was skillfully edited by Pat. Follow us on social media at Jev's Human Services on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Kristen Rantanen. Until next time on Where Policy Meets People. <laughs>